You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to another episode of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And on this week's show, we have Jackson Gibbons. Jackson heads up the City of London Academy slash Southwark Pride program down in South London. I've been a long admirer of his work, um, not only because of the success that he's had in a relatively short period of time, but actually uh, what's more impressive to me is the culture and the community that he's built around the program. Um, So I thought I'd have to have him on the show to talk to him about it, which is exactly uh, what we did. Before we do get into the show, I do have to give a quick mention to our Patreon account. If you go to patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash hoopsfix. If you support and you value our work and you want to help us become 100% independent and financially sustainable, you can sign up there for as much or as little as you'd like to donate every single month, which goes a long way in helping us do the work that we do, which takes hours upon hours every single week. Um, So we are coming directly to our audience, directly to you, to ask you whether or not you'd be willing to support. So you go to patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix, you can sign up there. And if you do, I will forever Love you. Anyway, um, that's enough from me. Uh, here's a show uh, with me and Jackson. Um, of course, if you're listening on iTunes, please do give us a rating and review. And if you want to give me feedback uh, one-on-one, privately, uh, via email, sam at hoopsfix.com, or you can reach out to me on all social media platforms at Hoopsfix. Uh, here is this week's show with me and Jackson Gibbons. Jackson, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I feel honoured there. Uh feel like I've arrived almost to do the Hoots Fix podcast, so thank you for having me. It's been a long time coming. Um, I wanted to have you on the show for a, for a long time, mm-hmm. obviously to talk about a lot of the great things that you're doing at Cola. Um, but I think the, the obvious place to start is actually going back into your, your playing days okay. uh, and how you first got into basketball. So mm-hmm. let's go right back to the start. Can you talk about how you first got involved with the game? Uh, I actually used to play football. I was really keen footballer. I remember... Uh, it's not one of my first memories, but one of my main memories as a kid was crying uh, at 10 years old at the World Cup 90 when we, we went out on penalties. And uh, it meant so much to me back then. And uh, I, I played the sport. Uh, I was a part of QPR's academy back then. And uh, I used to play, I think it was, well, it was, it was for Brent. It was for our local borough. And uh, it came through school and I loved football so much. It was so important to me, but... There was a weekend where there was a basketball tournament and our school went off to play in a basketball tournament. I had a game for Brent and I went and watched the boys play afterwards. It was at uh, South Kilburn School, uh, a couple of minutes up the road from my house. And uh, my PE teacher was there and stuff like that. And I watched it and I was like, this is incredible. Like, I, you know, what we did in school basketball-wise and how the tournament looked were two different things. And so uh, there was another tournament about a month later and I had the choice to go with Brent or I had the choice to go, you know, with, with my school team. And I went and uh, the tournament was at Mobley. It was uh, hosted by Westminster Warriors Basketball Club. And uh, I proceeded to be the most one-handed player in the gym, <laughs> left-handed, running around. But very quick and small and agile and managed to, you know, get through, uh, you know, could get through players. And a uh, gentleman came up to me and said, you're pretty good. He said, uh, what do you do? I said, nah, 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 I play football, I play football, you know, I'm you know, I'm going to make it in football and stuff like that. He said, well, just come down and try practice and, uh, and you know, you'll see, you know, how we do things and stuff like that. And uh, I was a little bit of a lost kid at the time and needed some direction. And uh, that gentleman was Junior Williams. And uh, he he told me to come and try it. And I went down on a Friday and there was a, a crazy man there that was running practice. And that crazy man was Steve Alexander. And Steve told me to come to the Saturday session. And it just... 
I fell in love with it. It was incredible. There were so many, now I look back, iconic figures at the club at the time. Namo Shiri was there. Uh, Julius Joseph, who did the podcast, who, you know, I listened to his podcast and I, I remember so many of the things that he was talking about. And I kind of looked at that time and said, football, basketball, football, basketball. And I was like, it's indoors. I used to be a centre forward, so I used to stand up front a lot, especially when we were losing and it was freezing. And I just <laughs> thought, do you know what? Basketball is, is me, is something. And uh, it was a good environment for me, me to be around because our single parent family were a lot of strong male role models and male figures in the club. And it was something that I needed at the time and I gravitated towards it. And uh, yeah, it kind of proceeded from there. So how old were you when, when that happened? It was just before my 14th birthday because I, I missed playing that season. I didn't get to play my first season. I kind of came part of... Uh, partway through the season and I started playing the following season so it would have been showing my age it would have been the end of 93 start of 94. So the moment that you made the switch um, mm -hmm. in your mind was it like this is basketball I'm serious about this now this is what I want to do or did it take a bit of time before it became a thing where it was like this is really what I want to do? It was the culture for me. Um, I was never a huge kid, and I think it's grown over the years. I was never a huge kid that necessarily thought I had to go to the States. Like, I had these huge dreams or aspirations. I don't think... I, I, I loved the NBA and I watched it, but I don't... You know, I, I had people that I admired, but I don't think I ever thought that was going to be me. I just thought, you know, it's something that I need at the time. Although saying that, I did used to idolize BBL players and want to play in the BBL. I think that that was something that, uh, in, you know, in the mid-90s, it was something to aspire to. I think that young kids used to go to the games. And when I was 14, 15, the older guys at the club used to take me to the games. We'd go to Wembley and watch Towers. We'd go to London Arena and, and watch guys play. And I used to look up to those guys and really think, like, one day I would love to be in that position because it, it was such a, you know, it was, I think it's getting slowly back to that. We won't go into the BBL. I'm no authority on to speak on it, but it was an aspirational thing for me when I was 14, 15. Like, I really wanted to be a part of it. That's super interesting. So who were the guys in the BBL that you were looking up to? Uh, it's weird, actually. Um, not really the Americans. I used to look up to the English guys and think, you know, maybe one day I could be like that. So I used to have, you know, some of my heroes are people that I've either played against or I'm still around nowadays is... Uh, Probably my favourite players were Andrew Bailey, who uh, works over at Greg City Academy now. And uh, literally, I've never seen a, a person be able to defend like Bales. He could just wall up and keep people in front. Americans, Europeans, whatever it was. He was just such a, a competitor and he was a skilled offensive player as well. And I used to look at him and think, wow, like if, if I could ever grow up and be like that, that would be... You know something that was uh, that I would want to do, and then and then Ronnie Be Ronnie Baker, instead Roy Baker, they were uh, you know two players that I really aspired to because I was a smaller point guard. I, I could see myself being those guys, and I also liked the leadership qualities. Ronnie and Steady, not quite loud. In fact, all three of them are quite reserved guys, chilled guys, but they were uh, they were leaders. They they put themselves out there, and I always felt at that young age that that was something that I could do. And so yeah, they were the guys, and then obviously. Uh, but Steve Bucknell came back to the league around those times. There was, uh, it was quite a, a, an influx of young guys. And then we had guys like Drew Sullivan, who was my age, we're the same age, but he was already on the bench in the BBL at like 15 years old. And uh, Robert Sargent, who went off to the States, and the Major Stewart was a... a 
was at London, what were they back then? London Leopards uh, playing over at London Arena. And these guys would be on the end of the bench. And so I would think, okay, like we're the same age. Maybe, you know, give me three or four years, I could get there. But, you know, supremely talented guys that maybe I, you know, I wasn't quite in their class. But I, it, it did, it felt like a very aspirational thing for me at the time. Do you hear any of your kids now talk about wanting to play in the BBR? Uh, not so much, but I think that with the you know the introduction of the internet and social media and how things are, I think that they look beyond it. And we've got a, a young man who who came to college. Actually, the first ever recruit that we had, Denzel Ubiara, went off to junior college, and now is having a really good career with Plymouth Raiders. And uh, I think a lot more kids should look in that direction. I think that UK basketball is, for want of you know describing it differently, I guess. It, it's got its issues and it's got its things, you know, areas of growth that we've got. But it's also, there's some fantastic things going on with some great people and some great opportunities that guys shouldn't look past. Um, and, and Denzel is one of those one of those people, you know, you've got Justin just come back to the BBL, Matthew, the guys at, at, at London City Royals that have all come home. It, you know, we can make it what we want. Uh, and I, I don't ever see myself necessarily being involved at that level. But it can be something that I think young kids aspire to. And I definitely don't turn any of our kids away from it. I say, contrary to the fact that everyone thinks we send all of our kids to the States, it's not the only pathway. I think that it's a good exit route for a lot of kids as well. So we're jumping around a little bit, but going back to your early playing days, um, started at Westminster, ended up in Brixton. Yeah. So how how did the switch come about? Why why the switch? Um, Weird. Jimmy didn't really recruit, to be honest. But what happened is there used to be, and you would know this very well, there used to be a summer tournament called Rough and Ready, which was essentially, it was the London All-Star game combined with a team from the North because there weren't really teams in North London at that time. Um, and it's weird story. Uh, I played in the very first one, but I didn't actually play. And I learned a very harsh last life lesson from Jimmy Rogers. Uh, is essentially, I never got to meet in time for the event and I didn't really understand what the event was going to be but the South team said it was North versus South in a junior all-star game and the South team uh, wanted not just to be Brixton players they wanted somebody else and so uh, Jimmy called up Steve Steve said yeah you know I've got this little point guard I think I should send him down you know Junior Williams took me down there and uh, I turned up and I turned up like 20 minutes after the meet time and I never knew what the meet time was Junior just told me to come and Jimmy was like I don't know who you think you are son um, you know, I don't know how they do it at Westminster, but down here and true story. Um, and I went there and I sat on the bench and uh, I was at the end of the bench for this whole game and people were shouting my name in the crowd. It was quite embarrassing. I didn't realize how great Rough and Ready would be. It was the very first one. And uh, it kind of taught me a valuable life lesson that if you don't know what the meeting time is, go and ask like find out especially if it's something that's going to be important and also don't judge whether you know something's going to be important or not you need to understand that everything should have a level of importance if you want to do it and uh, I was we were sitting down after the event and I was sitting with a, a friend of mine Sammy Saki who uh, I went to university with Sam Sammy was uh, we, we were like two peas in a pod at Brixton. Uh, another story behind that. <laughs> um, we would always be together at Brixton playing and pushing each other and stuff like that. And sat, we sat and we were watching the men's game at Rough and Ready and he kind of said to me, you know, we play against you at Westminster. You've got, you know, 
couple of good players on your team, but you you know you should come and play with us. And I was like, come to Brixton. It's like I can't leave my team though. I'm loyal, and he's like, you know, it's not about loyalty. And kind of you know persuaded me in in such a way. And uh, it was all well and good. And I, I didn't handle the situation well. I was young. I didn't tell Steve. Steve overheard a conversation with me talking to somebody else, and I, I got blitzed. But I still decided to go. And uh, I told Jimmy, I said, you know, I'd like to come down to Brixton. And I walked into this this environment and this culture that, that really, you know, Westminster, I think, I, I got this saying, it's quite cliche, but I say uh, Westminster Warriors made Brixton Top Cats raised because I, I would never have played basketball, basketball if it wasn't for Westminster Warriors. But I feel like Brixton is the place that took me to really loving it and feeling like I wanted it wanted it to be the rest part of the rest of my life and uh, it was just this unreal culture of uh, obviously you know people know Jimmy used to be in the army and he had this drill sergeant thing about him and when you're a 15 16 year old kid in London and single parent family struggling for identity struggling to understand who you really are you look at this man who's pushing you and you're like I want a compliment from that guy like I want that guy to to make me feel like I've done something right. And you would work at Brixton for Jimmy compliments and you wouldn't get them very often, but you would work really, really hard for them. And just the environment, there's some phenomenal people down there. Some of my best friends to this day are still, you know, my junior friends from, from Brixton Top Cats. And so uh, we played there for a couple of years and you know, it was a really good experience, really good time for me. What do you think uh, made Brixton Top Cats so special? Um, it was different back then. There was less competition. So it, it was, uh, you know, it was Brixton Top Cats and London Towers or Hackney White Heat as it became. Um, and they were the premier programs. Then you had Humph Long with East London Royals. Uh, and then there wasn't much else at that level. I guess you had Jack over in Chessington had a really good team as well. And I gravitated to Brixton because of how the culture was. And the culture was basically about accountability. It was about inclusivity as well. Jimmy wouldn't turn anyone away from the club. And I loved the fact that we would always be pushing each other. And, and some of my greatest basketball memories, we used to train at a school called Bishop Thomas Grant. And some of my greatest basketball memories and most torturous basketball memories are at BTG, you know, Jimmy making us do 51 backboard taps and he would open the gym door and he would take a chair out. You'd have to run around the chair and the chair would sometimes go down the hill and then he would say, forget the chair, go to the tree. And it it would be points where I would feel like, you know, I cannot do this anymore. And it, it, there were lessons in resilience and toughness and different things like that. And it just, everybody seemed to have good character and were nice people and were welcoming and the environment and the culture was good. And, and you know, Hackney White Heat was different at the time. It was They were very confident. They were very, you know, there was an element of being cocky. And I don't say that in a negative way, but, you know, you need to breed confidence in, in young adults. And we had a fierce rivalry with them, like a really, really fierce on-court rivalry. But we were all cool with each other off the court and we would get on. But I would never go and play for White Heat after I played for Bricks. And then they would never come and play for Bricks and after we played White Heat. And I, I think there's a few players that have kind of crossed over over the years. But it was... Uh, it was just something that about Brixton and the culture that I really, really loved and gravitated towards. And I, I do, I, I still credit it to this day that it, it helped massively shape my character and who I am today. So was the aspiration at this point um, to be a professional basketball player? The aspiration at 
18, 19 years old was to grow as a person and understand who I was because I, I had very limited direction. And Were you consciously aware that that was your aspiration? Because that's a mature thing to, at 18, 19 to be like, I want to grow as a person. That's kind of what I'm trying to do at the moment. That's a mature thing to say as a, as a teenager. It is and it isn't. I guess for me at that time, if you're searching and we're always all searching for new knowledge and, and to grow as people, um, I didn't have any long term aspirations at, at 18. Uh, Jack, who now runs, at, you know, I don't know if they, what they're called anymore, London United. Yeah. Yeah, London so, United, yeah. London United. So Jack, who ran it, used to t do annual trips to the States and he took a bunch of us over there and we went to ACC camp and there was a coach there that was interested in me from an NIA school and they recruited me and they would call my mom and Jack came to my house to speak to my mom and said, you know, it would be a good opportunity. And I just thought, I'm not mature enough for this. Like, I'm not gonna go and live four and a half, 5,000 miles away with, you know, an academic, I was never academic, I didn't like school. Um, and so I just felt like, I don't think that's for me at this moment in time. And uh, the interest quickly dwindled because, uh, you know, it was something that just wasn't, I, I wasn't too keen on it. And I, I felt like at the time it was, it was about me finding out who I was and, and being around stuff. And a couple of times, you know, I, I, I would go away from the game. I stopped playing for a year, got very lost in life. And I always found that being around basketball has been my sanctuary. It's given me something to keep, working towards and push and so I still don't know what I want to be or what I want to do you know 20 years later but I've kind of realized what I'm halfway good at and what I make how I'm able to impact people and how I'm able to survive on a daily basis and kind of live my life and I guess yeah it, it, it was started at Brixton um, and, and Westminster Warriors is a massive part of it as well um, but at that stage I'd say 20 21 years old I was at a point where I was definitely searching and I needed something and, and basketball now, 20 years later, I could tell you it's, that's what it provided. It provided me with the stability that I needed in life. At that point, did you have anything in the back of your head thinking one day coaching could be the thing? Never be a coach. Really? I always coached. Steve, if you know Steve and Jimmy, then you know that you're going to coach. You're going to go <laughs> on a Saturday morning. You're going to do the Saturday session. Uh, Steve used to, when I'd finished college, Steve would give me a bag of balls, he'd put me on a bus and I would go and coach some primary school somewhere in West London. Uh, often it would be me and Junior Williams would get on the bus, we'd split up, we'd go in different directions. We always used to go to Pimlico on a Wednesday and go to two different primary schools. And so I coached, like I knew how to do drills and stuff with kids, but it wasn't till years later when uh, the split with Westminster Warriors and Pioneers happened and uh, Pioneers set up a new club down the road and, and Steve was without coaches to coach the junior program and he approached me in Namo and um, kind of interesting story because he threw us in at the deep end. He uh, he said, you know, I need I need some help to coach the juniors. And we we're like, okay, so, you know, we're kind of busy, but we'll do it. We were doing Midnight Madness at the time and whatnot. And uh, he was like, okay, we'll meet me at practice on on the Monday, and uh, and you know we'll see what happens. And it was it was at Paddington Academy. We went down there, and there was one kid, and so we were like, where's the team? And he said, that's your team. He said you need to recruit, you know, the rest of the team. And I was like, well, how are we going to do it? And that was kind of like the beginning. I think it was 2007, 2008. That was the start of of my coaching career, and I started it. I did it for a few weeks, and just thought. This is something I could do, something I could be a part of. And people used to tell me, 
not necessarily the X's and O's stuff. People used to tell me that the interaction and how we managed the kids and how you know how we were around them was was something that they thought was a talent or you know an ability. Um, and so yeah, I've just kind of stuck with it for the last ten years, and I, I never envisaged that I would be at this point doing what I'm doing at the moment. It was never a career goal of mine. I've kind of just stumbled into it, to be honest. So away from uh, basketball, <coughs> away from basketball during your 20s, mm -hmm. what were you doing career-wise? Uh, I worked, it's weird actually, because it's a huge character building experience for me as well. I worked uh, in telesales or sell, I don't know if you call it telesales. Yeah, you would. It's uh, basically used to sell mobile phones over the phone for car phone warehouse. But because I worked in sales, they would do all of these uh, CPD and career development and try and help you. And they sent me on courses and I would do all of these leadership programs and uh, self-awareness things and stuff like that. And it was it was huge for me at the time because I got into, you know, as many people do at some stages into reading self-help books and understanding yourself and things like that. And it's weird because in my early 20s, I was the guy that read a book and someone mentioned something. I'd be like, well, no, actually, you need to do it like this because I read it in this book. And, you know, this is how you live life. And it's like, you just read that five or six days ago. Um, and so I got away from that and started to realize that, you know, everything is um, is relative to everyone's situation. You know, not everything is applicable at all times, but you should use your, your natural human feel as to how you, you approach each situation. And so... I was working in Carphone Warehouse and then uh, I think 2004, I was playing at Westminster Warriors and Nama was the head coach and uh, we were close. We had a good relationship, good, you know, coach and, and point guard relationship. And I remember us sitting outside uh, Mobley for, gosh, I think it, it, Nama will remember better than me and, and Nama likes to extend things over years <laughs> as well. So um, it felt like, like a 12-hour conversation. We definitely left there in the middle of the night and started after practice. And we were just talking about life and how you want to progress and move forward and the things that we would want to do. And uh, he told me about Midnight Madness. I told him about, you know, I, I was into life skills and I, I wanted to work with young people to... To, to give them life opportunities and stuff like that. And we kind of spoke about the synergy of how the two could work together. And, and he was already doing, or he had done Midnight Madness previously. It was something that he'd done in the early 2000s. And I played in it as a player. And so I, I kind of understood what it was. And by the end of that conversation, we decided like, we're gonna we're gonna bring this thing back. We're gonna make it, you know, a, a, a big thing. And, and it, was, uh, it was a really good, good time of my life and a good experience to be around that to kind of get that back to you know and supersede how it was before to be honest it, it, it grew massively so you essentially became Nama's right hand man on Midnight Madness over the course of how many years were you involved in the end I would always resent the word right hand man only because somebody said that years before and I think that we were partners, but partners in a different way he's definitely more experienced and older than me but I think that I would always I would bring different things to the party that would, it was never, he was, I, no one would ever challenge that Nama wasn't the face of Midnight Madness, yeah. but I think if for the players, for the people that are around it, I think that they would have seen me as the connection and the person that worked on the nuts and bolts and was the operations manager and made things happen. And I, I felt like it was a good partnership. It worked well. Namo is a visionary. He's a dreamer. I'm a nuts and bolts person that makes things happen. And uh, and it worked really well for a long time. 
So that was 2004 when you first got involved, when we was it? When we decided to, to bring it back in in 2005 was uh, when it made its return to Brixton. How many years did it have a break then? So um, I didn't even realise that it had a break. I think it had a break for like two years maybe. I think Namo did it. I think he started 99, yeah. 01, 02, 99, 2000, 01, 02, and then had a little break for a period of time. I know he got married in that time, had a child and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, it was definitely 04, we had the conversation, 05, we decided to to bring it back in the scale that it was. Uh, you know, for for obviously Midnight Madness, it's been a bit quiet on Midnight Madness' front over the mm. last, last couple of years. Mm. Um, I guess for any younger people that are listening that yeah. sort of don't know the history and kind of what it was and what it did, yeah. um, can you give us a sort of brief overview about the sort of scale that it got to? Yeah, I mean, it was huge. And, and you say that about the younger generation now. None of the kids at Cola have any clue who I am past <laughs> five years ago. They think... They, <laughs> think I was born at Cola you know I never did anything prior to that some of them doubt I ever had hair it's like <laughs> crazy situation because uh, I did have you know 30 plus years of life before it started but um the scale of Midnight Madness was um one of the things I think one of the big misconceptions people always thought we were doing really well and like you know oh you know those guys are you know they're, they're really successful and they're living well off it. and it was such a grind it was such a struggle um to the point where, you know, we would work ridiculous hours. We would be, you know, going from one event to another event. Marvin Addy, who's one of my best friends who used to do the road shows and stuff like that, was like, bro, this is insane. Like, we're literally having two hours sleep going in between each stop and stuff like that. But it, it was, you know, if, I don't know if reality TV was, was out back then, but if, if someone was to follow us on a reality TV show like that, back then it was a really good time it was enjoyable um and we would get you know depending on where you are in the country four or five hundred players in a gym uh for the finals and sometimes i think that the numbers are a bit skewed for the finals depending on who the performer was and stuff like that because you can never look past that but you know we had eight and a half thousand people i think it was uh, uh at wembley when uh, in 2008 when buster rhymes performed we had Crystal Palace more packed than I've ever seen Crystal Palace when Chris Brown was there and you know some of the basketball experiences were really really enjoyable um, and I made some great friends along the way met some really good players and uh, I think it supported a lot of people's dreams along the way as well there were a lot of people that that did quite well that got opportunities to go off to the states and things like that like it was it was beneficial to a lot of people I think the freeness of it all impacted the game as well there was a there was a sense of entitlement after a little while people would walk up and say i'm here like where's my t-shirt it's like you've been to the last four and got a t-shirt the last four you want the fifth t-shirt and it would sometimes be like and i I didn't really like that side of it i always felt like maybe we should have scaled some of the things down at the time but great time of life went to some amazing places all over the world watched some phenomenal stuff i was speaking to Drew Spinks the other day who uh, came on a trip to Chicago and I remember what that team did and we went and played against a, a select team from Chicago and you know they ended up beating them and uh, it was just a good time it was it, it was very for me gave me an enjoyable experience in my 20s to say you know I've done some things I've achieved some stuff and I've been around and met some great friends so it was, it was a good time and I think it helped a lot of people along the way I mean it was <clears throat> it was perfectly timed with the rise of streetball and the streetball culture and mm. and everything around that it was um yeah it was perfect I think mm -hmm. my actual first interaction with you would have been mm. in 2009 yeah uh 
when that was the first sort of proper event. Yeah. I mean, the first event I filmed that was Future Stars, mm. and then the next one was calling you and trying to get permission to to follow you guys around all summer. When we said no. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we for the finals, yeah, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, the qualifiers, mm. um, yeah, spent like, spent the entire summer following you around, yeah. and it was a grind, like. It, I mean, it was my first exposure to mm. really British basketball culture, mm-hmm. uh, having so many people in the gym, mm. um, and it was incredible for me. Like, I was just like, this is yeah. unbelievable. Uh, does it make you sad now that it's not around, or do you think that it was perfectly placed for its time and uh, kind of it's time to move on from it now? I think for me, it was time to move on. Definitely, I needed I, for for my own personal life where I was at the time. And there's, you know, I always hear people say, "Oh, why did you stop?" and what happened. There was no drama behind it. Nama and I sat down. We had a conversation. I told him I, I need to grow up and be a man. And you know, at the time, I was living at home doing, and it was time for me to to do something on my own. And I think, you know, you don't outgrow a situation, but everything runs its course after a while and and it will always be Namo's baby and it's something that he loves and that he you know absolutely I, I think if you were to go and approach Namo today and say Midnight Madness next week it's going to be back it's going to be here and I, and I never fought him for that it's something that he did really really well for a long time um and for me it was just about growing up it was about me going to the next chapter of my life and like I said it I I benefited from it uh, financially. No, everyone seems to think that it, it, you know, it was a really good time for us like that, but it wasn't. But just from a growth standpoint, like I learned a lot of skills to be able to organize events of that size. And when I talk about the nuts and bolts, I would do a lot of the organizing. Nama would network, he would speak to people and stuff like that, and then I would put it together. I I would manage the relationships with the players and stuff like that. And I never forget, Junior used to call. Uh, my Blackberry back in the day, Junior would call it the Blackberry because it had everybody's number in it. And there would be certain players that would call me and they would want individual rundowns like what's going on this summer. And I would just wait for the announcement, but our announcements were always late. You know, you'd have to wait until July for the announcement and stuff like that. So I couldn't wrong people for for wanting to know. But for me, yeah, it, it wasn't there was no scandal behind it, no anything negative. It was just time to move on. And uh, do I think that there's scope for it to come back? Yes, but probably in a different format now, just in a different way because the culture's different, the generation's very, very different. Um, but summer basketball, you know, you you run your event to, with huge success and uh, things like your event, Midnight Madness, Rough and Ready, they help fill a void within a summer that players, they just don't have anything to do. And so... I'm sure Nama will bring it back one day and it will be successful. And the last, you know, even after I left and I stopped doing it, I still took our kids down to go and participate in the clinic and supported them and went to the finals and stuff like that. And it, it was good. And uh, I just think that the generation's changed a little bit and times have changed. And and also the people that want to sponsor events like that, the 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 niche and the demographic that they put their money into now is quite different to, to what they did in the mid-2000s when we were kind of getting Nike on board and, and having them want to, to put money into the UK basketball market. So so jumping back to your, your coaching, um, so your your first experience was turning up at a gym and one person being there. One kid. <laughs> uh, and then ultimately um, with that Westminster Warriors Junior Club, you ended up with a team that went 24-0 and mm-hmm. won a national title. Yeah. Um, I think that was actually my first junior final fours. It was 2010, wasn't it? 2010, yeah. Uh, so that was Ryan Martin, Teddy, Leon yeah. Bennett-Harris, like absolutely stacked squad. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, talk about your kind of uh, progression in coaching mm. uh, over the course of what was that a couple of years? Like, yeah. um, you know, how you found it, and did you find yourself sort of slowly falling in love with sort of the teaching side of the game? Um, I, I used to love coaching with Nama. We had a really good relationship, uh, and it was weird because we were co-head coaches, but our relationship we're like older brother younger brother but in different dynamics because namo would always seek for decision making and things like that in terms of player personnel and things that always come to me always if if there was a life lesson to be taught to the kids namo's brilliant he can talk for days and you know but he we would that stuff would always bounce off me and he's it's a shame he doesn't coach now because he's really good x's and o's wise and the game's evolved he probably hasn't coached for six or seven years but um he's very sharp like that and at that time i wasn't ready to to be a head coach or whatever but we used to work and and that team it was weird because leon bennett harris was the first player to come and join and he came with a player called yosa abifade and there were some other boys we had a, a kid mustafa alfaki they weren't quite as high profile as the other guys and um what ended up happening is we had the first season and it went okay and they were all at Midnight Madness that summer and everybody swears we recruited them and we didn't. What en- what really genuinely happened is the boys played on a team in Midnight Madness one summer and they qualified to come to the morning a game event uh, that we had with LeBron James and it was the free showing. And Teddy was like, I, didn't, I never ever thought Teddy was going to come and play for us. And, and Teddy was like, so what's up with the team this year? And I was just like, pardon? He's like, you know, uh, East London Royals, they've only go up to under 16. I need an under 18 team. I'm going to go to Barking Abbey, but I need a club. So, you know, I invited him down to practice and I gave one of these these visionary talks about what I see the season becoming. And Teddy ended up joining and, and he and Ryan were good friends. Ryan uh, had established a relationship. Ryan decided to come. Then Ileandro Il- Nazio came. And they just all kind of, fell together and I remember one of the first practices Namo and I ran practice and we had two teams and we had you know we had them going up against each other uh, we were running scenarios so end game scenarios and stuff like that and we were at opposite ends of the court and we looked at each other and we were just like because we actually had uh, Gabe Oleseni for, for one game and then he decided to go back to the club that he was with Uxbridge Emperors at the time um and it would have been incredible if he was with us. But at that time, just looking at the team, it was like, wow. And, and to look where they've all gone on to now. And I don't feel, and I don't think Nama would ever say, I don't feel like we didn't make any of those players. Um, the majority of them started playing elsewhere. It was just about bringing a group together and building a culture. And, and we had some incredible times that season. And those boys grew so much as human beings. And they got on so well. There was no rivalry between them. Um, and they were so different. And so it, it allowed us. I remember the best thing that happened to us that season is we lost to Reading in the Cup. We went up to Reading and Reading had a really good team there. Kofi Josephs and... Uh, Adam Thosby. St- Adam Thosby and Steve Vaughan. And, and that team was really good. And they were coached by Matt Johnson um, and JP. And that was tough for me and Namo to go against them, you know, tactically. They, they played really good fundamental basketball. And we lost to them in the Cup. And that was the wake-up call that those boys needed to go undefeated. And, and we learned some harsh life lessons that year. Two of the boys, we were going to an away game at Itchin, uh, not Itchin, Solent, sorry. And uh, two of the boys came late and gave excuses as to why they came late. And so 
said you were doing what? One of them said, oh, you know, I was, uh, I was doing something for my mum. So I said, no problem. I called the mum. I said, was he doing? She's like, I don't know what he's talking about. I said, no problem. So we left two of our best players in London. And I'm a huge American football fan. And in American football, because there's so many injuries, they always say, look, it's next man up. Don't pout. Don't complain about who's not there. Just coach the next person up to, you know, the best of their ability. And... We went down there undermanned and we walked in and Solent was so ready for us. They put on a press, we were down 25 at a half and uh, we came all the way back in the second half through this, you know, talk that we both gave them. And it was a 50-50 talk at halftime. We came all the way back, tied the game on a slightly dubious shot by Ryan Martin. Everyone questioned whether it was after the buzzer or not, but it had been some calls during the game. I think we were owed one. And uh, Ryan hit the shot to tie the game. We ended up winning in, in OT. And that was the selling point to these boys is that we're not going to cheat the process. We're not going to take shortcuts. If you're not going to do what you're supposed to do, we're going to hold you accountable. We're going to, you know, do this thing the right way. And if you do these things the right way, you'll be able to find success. And, and they did for the rest of the season. They were absolutely locked in for the whole year. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was a really successful time. A great team to be a part of. There was something I wanted to get into a little bit later, but <clears throat> since you touched upon it there, mm. maybe it's worth talking about now. Mm. It's kind of uh, principles uh, and philosophies and stuff. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's always struck me, struck me about your programs, mm. um, you know, even going back to the Westminster days, is when I show up, all of them would come over to me and shake my hand and say hello. Even yeah. A lot of them I'd never met in my life. That might be because you might put highlights up on, <laughs> <laughs> on the internet. But no, yeah, they're, they're supposed to greet adults and show respect at all times yeah so 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 where where does this come from like sort of um what has made you sort of instill these values and kind of well from from my standpoint go way beyond basketball and actually mm. trying to develop uh young people into adults um partly because of what i needed as a kid uh partly because of the life lessons that i learned at brixton and, and the things that i learned at westminster warriors as well um but I'm just very big on standards. And I think if you don't have standards, if you have standards, then you can achieve many things that you wouldn't if you didn't have standards. And and I think that it probably comes from the stuff in my early 20s as well, like doing a lot of reading and trying to educate myself on life and how I can be better. And uh, one of the biggest things that you always read about if you ever read any self-help book is the path of least resistance. Are you gonna go the easy way or are you gonna do the stuff, you know, and, and, and really go the hard way? Is there gonna be sacrifice involved in what you're doing? And it's easy to walk into a gym and see an adult be like, Ugh, you know, I'm not in the mood. But for me, it's about respect. It's about you being able to look someone in the eye and you don't have to like everybody. And I say this, and you know, if you want to get more onto the culture, I can talk about you know the kids at Cola and stuff like that. Because I, I don't, you don't all have to be best friends. We don't have to fake friendship in in our environment. But you have to look at those people as your brothers or sisters in basketball because you're all trying to achieve one common goal. And I stress that so much with all of our kids and it goes down to the smallest things and all of the kids at Cola, if they ever listen to this, they'll roll their eyes and all the kids I've ever coached will probably roll their eyes. I hate sliders, the footwear. I just think that kids walking around wearing those things is doesn't show, set, a, set a good example for them conducting themselves or them looking presentable. Um, I don't like kids wearing hoods walking into a gym. I don't think that that shows the people that are walking in that you're approachable, that you're nice people. And so I always preach to our kids, you know, when you walk into a gym, 
have your hood off, make sure you've got p- proper footwear on, no headphone. And if someone says, hi guys, how are you? Ask them how they are back. Um, and I think some of that stuff comes from my mum as well and, and how she raised me. But I think those things are important. If you get those small details, those finer details in right, I think the other things can come. I think that you can you can learn to be a better basketball player, but it starts with being a good human being and doing the things the right way. And a big part of it is as well, I credit a, a club for this. Uh, I don't know what they were called back then, but they're called Kent Crusaders now. And there was a lady there, Lorraine Dagger. Um, and she did us a favor once. I can't remember what it was. She moved a game or she did something. And we walked in and, you know, she was uh, very polite and really nice to us. And, and she was speaking to one of the parents and they wrote an email when I was at Westminster Warriors. I think it was the first year. They wrote an email to Basketball England and just said, what a nice group of kids that, Westminster Warriors group are and I always stress to our kids you know stereotypes exist all over the world and I'm not huge into race stereotypes but I am into you know and when I say I'm not huge into race stereotypes someone will judge me on that I just mean in terms of I'm not going to walk into a room straight away and think that that was about race but what I will do is uh, generational stereotypes can be very very uh, relevant in this day and age and people can see a group of kids walk in at 15 16 years old and judge them and say that they are that type of kid that they are they do behave a certain way and I never want our kids to fit those stereotypes I want us our kids to walk into a gym and people to say there's a nice group of kids they're well behaved like you said our kids are going to walk up to you and shake your hand and, and show you the right level of respect and I think that if we do those small things, the little intricate things that are easy, it's not hard to do that. Although some people find it difficult because social skills are quite learned to, hard to learn in this day. And I think it helps. I think it benefits the kids long term. And you just never know who's watching. You never know who's in the gym. Um, we've had some coaches come in our gym that are very, very powerful, very, you know, they've got a lot of connections and weight and pull. But they've come into our gym unbranded. You don't know who they are and first impressions last a lifetime and I just think that that's really important for our kids and I, and I harp on about it. and some of our kids would roll their eyes if they were sitting in here right now it's like I've heard it some so many times before they've heard my cliche quotes so many times before but I just think it's important to stress those things on the same basis you spoke then about um you know about people being late and so as a result uh you know they, they didn't get taken to the game um i know that you're strong on grades and education and make sure that late and lied late and lied they late they were late oh and they, they, lied. they late and they yeah. lied oh, so okay, yeah. I, I mean coming late to a game i figured things out like if a kid comes tearing through the door and got sweat dripping down ahead and it's genuine and something happened on the train i'm a flexible human being i'm not yeah, yeah you yeah. know harsh to the point where I can't understand it but late and lied you're never going to play for me that's just not going to work and I don't care if you score 25 points or two points I'm going to judge you the same way so so has that can you think of any occasions where that has actually led to you losing games because oh, yeah. you've been missing players because of they haven't yeah. sort of upheld their standards 2010 we had that incredible team 2012 I think we had just an incredible team and those boys weren't committed in the same way that the 2010 boys were and we got upset in the first round or second round of the playoffs against Barking Abbey at Mobley uh, we were undefeated in the season the boys were phenomenal we had so much talent um but they just didn't carry themselves the right way I was at that game I think you were probably at that, that game. was with Terrell when you had Terrell Isaacs Joe Jr yeah 
unbelievably talented team, but we didn't live the right way and they learned the, the lesson the harsh way. And I've got so much time for all of those boys. They're wonderful human beings. They're great kids. But at the time, as a unit, we weren't mature enough to, to win that game. We didn't we didn't turn up with the right mentality and got upset on our home floor. And I talk about those two teams to our current kids, um, not to vilify one and glorify the other, but just about your decisions. And, and life to me is about choices and I always say to our kids one of the biggest things I kind of use this more towards education but it's to do with basketball as well when any kid leaves me I want you to have options not limitations I want a kid that wants to come to Cola a young person if they come to interview or whatever what I say is work as hard on your GCSEs between now and you know when you have your exams control what you can control because between now and that time if you do everything you can, you can walk in here and you can tell our school what you want to do instead of sitting here in our school telling you, well, you can pick these three courses. And I want that for all of our kids that are involved in our program. I want them to have options and not limitations. And so with those teams, those two teams, to me, parallel with talent, but one team made a choice for complete sacrifice and another team decided to do it their own way. And the end outcome you know, is written in history. Now we can't change that. So I'm aware of time here and uh, we haven't really gotten to Cola, which is one of the <laughs> sort of the big things that I, mm-hmm. I wanted to focus on. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, you know, from my standpoint, Cola kind of came out of nowhere um, yeah. and experienced a lot of success very quickly and mm-hmm. uh, produced a lot of players very quickly. A lot mm-hmm. of players end up in the States and are still in the States. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, take me back to the start of City of London Academy. How did it come about? What was the conversation? And kind of what made you get involved with that? I would assume that meant your first switch into full-time basketball yeah, coaching. Yeah, for sure, yeah. Um, so I was. Co- it, it was partly off the back of that 2012 team um, in terms of I was around those boys and the younger age group, not so much then, but the younger age group, I would always keep up with the teachers even when I was coaching at the club, um, I would go and see form tutors. I would visit schools and stuff like that. And at the time I was working with Reach and Teach and it was fairly flexible and managed my own time. And, you know, as long as I was getting my work done during the day, I could go and visit schools and stuff like that. But I, I felt like I was having an impact with the kids, but not the impact that I wanted, kind of seeing them six to eight hours a week, four hours for training and whatever happened with the games. And so... I I looked at the stuff that was going on and I don't think, I don't know if it was the EABL back then or or, or what it was. I don't know if it was formed in 2012. Uh, I should know this, but no, it wouldn't have been formed in 2012. But uh, Lloyd Gardner, who, you know, I'd say he's a good friend of mine now, but back then we we played against each other as 17, 18 year olds. We had a year when we were at Brixton where Ware absolutely dominated us and they had a phenomenal team back in 97, 98 and they dominated everybody. Um, and then the following year, think Duncan had left and moved on and, and Lloyd was there himself. And so Lloyd and I always familiar with each other. Um, and then we had the synergy with Ryan and Teddy playing and and again we would have to communicate and liaise about those guys um and so i just called lloyd one day and i said you know how does the basketball academy stuff work like what's the situation of it like what do you want to do and and to my surprise he was like oh well come and meet me mark and i and we'll we'll talk about it and i thought okay you can give me the blueprint of of what you guys do and they basically did they sat down and they told me how it works and 
at the end of the conversation, I said, why are you guys telling us we need play, people to play against? You know, there's not a lot of competitive academies. I know SGS were getting good at that time and Copleston was around, but yeah. there was probably, what, five or six maybe teams at that time. It wasn't, you know, Barking seemed very dominant and they just, it was honest. They were like, we need people to play against. And I said, okay, well, you know, I appreciate it. I think I told them some stuff to do with what I was doing in the community at the time as well, maybe to just as a trade-off to help. And uh, and we pitched the idea to the school in uh, in twenty th- end of twenty twelve, uh, leading into twenty thirteen, and uh, we pitched the idea to the school. Why that school? Uh, there were five schools, um, and that school had great facilities. And the PE teacher was a, a little bit of a visionary at the time, Mr. Griffin, who to me is a legend. I actually went out with him last night, and uh, and we caught up. But he he was doing a master's degree whilst being the head of PE, and he's doing a, a master's in uh, education and leadership. And he saw the things that I put in the proposal as things that could really benefit the school and the academy and our first year of recruitment was really interesting because we had all these kids scheduled to, for recruitment sterling was coaching at Southwark pride and i was coaching westminster warriors and those kids were the kids that were going to come to the school and about 75 percent of them probably more than that to be honest came to the school realized the entry requirements couldn't get on the courses they wanted to do and, and left and we were in really left with denzel as the the main featured player and I'll always have love for Denzel because he could have gone somewhere else, could have, you know, decided and he was at the time just thought, you know what, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to stick with it. And uh, it, we ended up with probably five players for the first year and it really? wasn't really what you, you, you'd think it would be. But obviously we had strong junior players from Westminster and I'd cleared it with Steve. I told Steve Alexander, this is my intention. You know, I want these boys to come down and, and be a part of... Uh, of the academy and and obviously we had the kids coming over from the pride as well and, and it was only 2014 where we had the first proper cohort of kids so was your first season 2012 13 or 2013 14 2013 14 that would have been the first season of the abl okay um yeah you weren't in it that year was it the next year you joined yeah i don't know to be honest we we're in our fourth year now this is our fourth year okay. that we're starting um, but the first year at Coda where we didn't have the cohort that we wanted uh, or that we, we intended to get was so beneficial for the kids that went to Cola because they had two full-time basketball coaches in the school. So some of the so girls... you were just working with the pupils rather than actual... We would still have team training for the clubs and stuff yeah. like that. But those kids, like you, you look at people like Toyo Siabiola and, and Chandra Jones and, and Getty and Kumar and those, they they were at the school. So... You know, true blood kids that started at the school, and, and they got a year of just intense basketball. And I don't think they know knew what happened, especially the two girls. They were just in school. All of a sudden, they had coaches in school all the time, and they were being taken all over London to playing games. And they played in the CBL and stuff like that. And uh, I felt like it, it, it grew, and and we just had a lot of opportunity kind of come together all at once. And then obviously, fourteen, fifteen, we had cohort come from the clubs and they understood we understood the school a lot more i think the first year in recruitment i was like can i can i get in or not it's like no they don't have the entry requirements for the courses they want to do because um, you're quite a strong academic school compared to some academies right it's it's a high academic school like i i yeah. wouldn't you know i don't want to say anything on air to 
I, I might compromise myself, but it, it, it's a high attainment school. Like we achieve a lot, and uh, at the moment, it's like we're only doing A levels, and uh, the school are going to get back to doing B techs. But that means it only caters for a certain type of student. Yeah. Um, so a lot of kids want to come to Cola and don't get in, unfortunately, which we love to do because we try not to turn people away. And I think that that was one of the things when I spoke to Lloyd and Mark about starting a basketball academy. One of the biggest things is. They're very transparent at Barking. They're an elite basketball academy. They, you know, they want the best kids. They're going to develop the best kids to the next stage and send them off, you know, on their way. I always wanted us to have a community feel as well to provide an opportunity for, you know, the the me, the the, the someone who is in a situation because in my junior team in Brixton. I was talented, but when I went from Westminster Brixton, we had some phenomenal players that, you know, I had to find a niche to be on the team. And I always wanted Cola to be that type of place that someone could could play just because they liked the game, not just because, uh, you know, they were one of the best players in the country. And that's just the difference. It's not to slate anybody else or say anything negative about anyone else. That's just what I, you know, I, I, I wanted to do at the time and how I thought that it would, that it would pan out. So, um yeah, it's uh, it's a different place. It's, it's sometimes you can walk in there and it can look really, really elite, and sometimes you can walk in there and it feels like a community club and a community vibe, and so it, it's quite different. So at that point when you bought, so you bought in, uh, you had players obviously at Westminster, mm. and then you had Sterling Machette who mm-hmm. um, was running Peckham Peckham Pride as mm-hmm. it was known. Yeah, Peckham Pride won a national league club at that point. Whether they were just a, they had under 15s. Oh, they did. They had uh, under 15s okay. national league. Yeah. But mainly their focus was the CBL and playing the local stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'll be careful with how I say it, but it, it wasn't a club as such. It wasn't run in a way that it was the growth was gonna be there. Yeah. As soon as as soon as it moved to Cola, we had the division four team. We had yeah. you know, we decided to start entering women's teams and stuff like that and it, it it grew, but you, you had a, an influx of talent at that place as well, you know, uh, at that club in terms of, you know, young, raw talent that needed to be in a place that was going to harness it and develop it and, and kind of push them on to the next level. I think when I when I look at Cola, um, mm-hmm. the biggest thing that separates what you do compared to other places mm-hmm. uh, is the culture, you know. Um, is that intentional? Like when you, when you had the plan, when you had the blueprint that you took mm-hmm. to City of London Academy, mm-hmm. Did you did you factor that in? Did you put that in? This is what we want to try and do because you know there's very few sort of school games, the ABL games that people are showing up to, and there's you know 150, 200 kids there on the mm. sideline watching, screaming, shouting like you've got some of the best support mm. and club feel mm. um, in the country, and you've done that in a. It's not a club that's been around for mm. 30, 40 years, so you've had the time to build up. Yeah. You know, it's, it's 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 happened in such a short period of time. Yeah. Um. So when you talk about sort of creating that culture, mm-hmm. like how have you done that? Um could just be potluck you never know we could have got lucky and and been in a school where you know a lot of kids take interest but we always did key stage three and four coaching so there's not many kids in cola that haven't been engaged in basketball in some way shape or form um and then i find it difficult to understand why it doesn't happen in other schools not you know i i guess i our sports was not really even in the main building. It, it's detached. It's it's over in the sports block. But if you know that Barking Abbey are coming to Cola and you're a 14, 15-year-old kid, you've got to go and watch that game, surely. And we put posters up in the school and advertise and stuff like that. And I guess one of the biggest things, uh, and I talk to all of the kids before they come 
before they join the school about it is you you never know who's watching you and it's not just who's watching you from your own career perspective as in is a coach watching you as a coach you know in the gym that you don't know about but you never know who your hero is and I, I I had heroes when I was in year seven in school guys that were in the sixth form that I just thought were grown men unbelievably cool now many years later I look back they were 16 and 17 years old but they looked like they had life figured out and they'd sorted things out and if they're carrying themselves a certain way and they're behaving a certain way I'm going to go and emulate that behavior and so it happens in all uh, basketball academies you know they have their track suits and stuff like that in our academy you only wear your track suit two days a week you wear it on Wednesday which is game day and you wear it on Friday as a reward if we've been doing what we're supposed to do because it's the last day of the week and it's more of a you know I don't want to say a more relaxed day but it is you know our school finishes slightly early on a Friday as well so they're the reason that they wear those track suits but they're so visible and especially in a, a, a regular inner city London school having six foot six six foot seven kid walking around wearing a red tracksuit you stand out and you never know who's watching you never know what that person is learning from you at that time and so I stress to all of our kids over and over again you have to be a role model you have to conduct yourself the right way because you are influencing the next generation you're impacting them and if you're carrying yourself in the wrong way you never know who you're going to lead in the wrong direction. And if you're carrying your way in the right way, you never know who you're going to inspire. And I think that that's a huge emphasis within our school. It's really important. And part of that, it comes from, it also comes from Mr. Griffin as well, because he was the PE teacher when we first started. He's moved on now, but um, he's very much built like that. He he thinks that being a, you know, a young role model, especially if you're cool basketball player if you're a six foot girl or you're a, a, a five foot three point guard that can run shapes all around people and people are like because if you ask any of the younger kids in any basketball academy they'll have a favorite player what does that favorite player do that you like what do they do that you want to copy and you emulate and i think that i put a huge or we put a huge responsibility on those kids shoulders that you have to carry that responsibility and live it out in the right way and I also bring a lot of people into our academy that I think are good role models. So we have Ogo Adigboy who comes down sometimes and works with the kids. Steve Veer used to come down and help us. Marvin Addy used to come down and, and be a part of the academy. Um, Brian Naguru, who you know has just got his degree at UEL, he comes down and he's our new strength and conditioning coach. Uh, we were blessed to have Paddy Wapplington, who was the uh, Commonwealth uh Commonwealth Strength and Conditioning Coach and Paddy's just a good human being he he helps instill life skills we have a brilliant PE department it's no one thing that I can tell you there's a formula it's just I think if there's one thing I always aim for is to set standards for the kids and, and hold them to those standards if they want to achieve if they don't want to achieve if you don't if it's not your goal I'm not going to push you to play basketball I'm not going to push you into a scholarship in the states if you don't want to do it but if you tell me you want to you want to go to the States and, and get a scholarship. I'm going to hold you to that account. And if you fall short of it, we're going to have to address it. And that's, uh, that's kind of the, the thought process behind the place. Do you find, uh, if you speak to the younger kids in the school, that they do um, look up to, well, the older kids in the school and also potentially kids that have come before them and gone on to scholarships in the States and stuff? Massively. That's, that is the, the huge part of it, is that they aspire to be like the old, older generation. If I... If I was to, you know, you and I were to walk into Colin now and I was to say to a year seven kid, probably one that's been involved in basketball and not just a random kid, but if I was to say to them, you know, 
who do you like? They would say, oh, you know, Toyosi was my favorite or, you know, Shaq was my favorite. This one, Ty was my favorite. And one of the things we would do as well is get those older kids to talk to the younger kids. And, and if something goes wrong, sometimes, you know, I think I spoke to Lloyd about this the other day. It's like sometimes people mistake being calm and cerebral as you coaching in the right way. Sometimes you just can't talk anymore. Sometimes, you know, um, if I've been banging my head against a brick wall with a kid, sometimes, you know, kids teaching kids is the most powerful thing because they can re they can relate to a young person far better than they can to now me. You know, when I was at Westminster Warriors, I used to think, you know, I'm late 20s, early 30s, I'm still cool. They kind of think, you know, that there's some connection. But now I'm older, I feel the gap kind of, you know, the gap is, is widening itself. And there's nothing better than somebody who's in their own age group that they can relate to. Um, you know, being able to give the message and kids teaching kids is really powerful. The other thing is that school seems to have really got behind it. You know, mm -hmm. the thing that I, I'll always remember is when uh, after you'd won, I think it was after you won the WABL title. Yeah. And uh, when the girls came back to the school, there was this video of, of yeah. them walking into the main lobby and there's yeah. just the entire school, it seems, mm -hmm. giving them a round of applause and cheering. I yeah. think there was a band or there was just all sorts of craziness. Yeah, I would love to pretend that I had something to do with that, <laughs> but I didn't. That was uh, our old head of school, Mr. Huntley. So he definitely deserves a shout out. And he organized it. And I'm a huge Rocky fan. So playing the Rocky theme was incredible. And for me, if, you know, if I was to single out one moment in my life where I really felt like, wow, you know, we've done something special, it was that moment. Those girls, as they walked out in front of their school, they were heroes and they were icons and, and the whole school was there late, you know, around the balconies and, and uh, it was just a really, really special moment. So the school have brought in, we've had a lot of support over the years, you know, I think the ACE program's been big for us. Uh, Charlie Ford, who, who managed that, has always been really, really supportive to us as well. I definitely have to, you know, mention his name, uh, John Wise, who runs Ace. Th those guys have really supported us, um, you know, along the way. Paul Fisher, too. It, it, we've never had anything but support. Every time we've hit a roadblock, they've helped us. And, and you as well. I know, you've, you, know <laughs> you don't want to take the compliment, but you've supported us through the EABL over the years. And uh, we had many slip ups. I'm not going to say that. I, I'm not going to sit here and say that we haven't screwed up. We haven't, you know, had our issues along the way. But one of the biggest things I, I say to our kids is that there's nothing more powerful in life than the power of your word. And if you can't keep your word to yourself, you can't keep it to other people. Now you can be late, you can screw things up. But if people know that you're genuine, and you're going to keep your word on something, they'll trust you, they'll work with you, they'll want to be able to support you. And you know, Jesse too, I shouldn't leave out Jesse Suzanne as well. You know, those guys and you, you as a collective always supported us because I think you could see that even if we were struggling, if we were struggling to load our game to cross over, you'd be like, look, Jackson, come on, man. Like, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Have you cleared the cash? Like, do something different. But we were always trying. There was never a time where, like I said, I, I, I want to walk my talk with these kids. I want to be a role model. I want them to know that if... If I'm inspiring them and telling them that they can do things that I've got to try myself, I've got to do things. And so part of how we've got to, to where we've got to at the moment is because of trying to walk the talk and not just being people that say one thing and do something else. And so, you know, with the support that we've had in the growth of the academy from Basketball England and the league and stuff like that, it's been about fulfilling what we've promised, not being the type of people to, to sign up to something. We play the games, the players want to come to Kohler and then we don't deliver on the other end. I think that, that you know, the power of your word is really, really important in life.
One thing I always seem to, I, I sort of forget is how mm. important it is to have the school's backing. Yeah. You know, with all these academies, at any point, if a new head teacher comes in or someone, you know, in senior management decides that they don't want, they don't want a basketball program, yeah. it could all fall down pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how do you get, how do like, <clears throat> yeah, how do you get a school to, to support you? Um, do you have to, do you have sort of regular communication where you're, you know, feeding back the things mm. that you're doing, the success stories that you've had to get the buy-in or like, yeah, um, yeah like h- how does that process work? Uh, it's difficult, if I'm honest. I think anyone who runs a basketball academy around the country will will speak to the fact that it's, it's quite a volatile environment. In terms of, it can change at any time. Like I couldn't tell you in two years, Cola is going to be what it is now. It could it could grow and become even bigger than it is now or it could in two years you know we're actually about to change our head teacher um and so i don't know we've got a brilliant head teacher um very personable spent a lot of time with him helped me out greatly over the years and so he's very in favor of basketball we don't know who the next person's going to be and so we're lucky we've got a brilliant vice principal who's my line manager at the moment who supports in a big way and, and you know, for the duration of time that he's there, I think that it will continue to be successful. Um, but you never know, a new head could come in and the new head could just be like, this resource that we're putting here, let's go and put it over here. And uh, English and maths is a huge thing in schools at the moment. You know, it's a, it's a big focus. And if they decide that they want another maths teacher or another English teacher and one less basketball coach or, you know, make somebody go part time, then the dynamic of the situation changes. So I, I wouldn't say there's any basketball academy in this country that is a lock to, to stay there for a long time unless they've got a brand new head teacher or they've got you know something but what we can always guarantee the kids that come in is that we'll be there for the duration of your two years or your three years nobody's gonna bail halfway through your situation hopefully but you never know what can happen everyone's got you know your your own life uh your own life journey um but it is it's quite an interesting situation there's no guarantees because ultimately it's enrichment that's how it's pitched in the school and enrichment whilst extremely important is not compulsory um or the type of enrichment isn't compulsory you can do anything you know our school's got loads of different clubs as every school has we've got music club drama club uh gym club and stuff like that so as long as you're putting on enrichment it just so happens that our school sees basketball as as a huge focus at the moment and the other thing um that i think is very noticeable about Kyla is the fact that you develop so many of your own players from a young age, mm. um, so you don't necessarily need to recruit as much as maybe other places because you just seem to have this little sort of uh, conveyor belt of talent coming through. <laughs> um, you know, what's your what's your philosophy on that? How do you approach that um, Insa- to ensure that insanity you- <laughs> just work seven days a week and. Uh, I mean, to ensure that we've got the players coming through, and it's not really to ensure they're coming through because not every kid wants to come to Cola that that plays as part of the club. And and the club and, and the school are two very separate things. Um, you know, for you, you kind of have to understand a school's objectives and our school's objective is not to necessarily have a community club that operates under a different name. But if it op- operates under the same name, then... You know, there are different things that need to take place and, and whatnot. And so um, we have the kids that, that, that play for the club um, and they want to be a part of it. And we develop, we have around two under-16 teams. Last year we had some under-14 teams and they move up. Um, 
but it is it's just to have you know an, an opportunity for younger kids to play within our environment and, and what we ended up having is a lot of second generation kids so younger brothers and sisters that wanted to be a part of it and that's what kind of remained and we've kind of got top heavy the last year or so like we're under 16 we're under 18 we've got senior teams we haven't necessarily got the under 12s in place we've just started under 12s again or restarted um so there are always gaps and it's tough anyone who runs a basketball club will understand about resource and opportunity and funding and stuff like that is really really hard and i wouldn't say we're the greatest at it in the world um but you're always going to have these younger kids that want to play and we have the younger kids at code and we have the younger kids from in and around Southwark who you know who want to be a part of the program as well and so I guess the success of the older ones will draw in younger ones and, and allow them to want to play yeah. uh, one thing I did want to touch upon was mm-hmm. uh, the switching of the name from Peckham Pride to Southwark Pride mm-hmm. um, what was the thought process behind that just to be more encompassing Peckham's an area Southwark's a borough and so you know that was just it it wasn't anything to do with uh, anything to do with Peckham as such it was just to be more encompassing so that kids from outside of Peckham can would believe that they it. can identify and, and want to be a part of it yeah okay so, makes sense mm-hmm. so then when you um, when you started Kolar mm-hmm. I'm going to guess assume that that was when that marked your switch from coaching young men to young women not the first year we were both in different places, so I was coaching the boys and the girls, yeah. and, and uh, it just made more sense to have one side and, and, and the other rather than, uh, and I'd never really coached girls prior to that. And yeah. My first time coaching girls was uh, London Youth Games 2013. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was just something that, it was a bit of a bigger project at the time, I think, and, uh, and one that, kind of was refreshing to me it was something that was new um i miss coaching boys and steve again dear friend of mine he always say oh yeah no because you're a girls coach i'm like i'm not a girls coach i'm a basketball coach and steve will probably listen to this and laugh and say yeah okay you know put my business out there but i'm not i'm a basketball coach and you never know next year i might go back to coaching boys um you just don't know but for me coaching the girls at the time was the right thing and uh, and I think it helped with my own personal growth as well how do you differentiate like um you know when you compare the two what are the differences uh how do you change your approach is this podcast going to be a video as well as a okay so I, my analogy and I use it when I speak to the parents about wanting to come is that girls and boys are built physically and mentally completely differently and I'm no expert I say to all of our girls I can teach you anything about life I can teach you anything about basketball I cannot teach you the first thing about being a woman um (laughs) that's not a niche of mine but what I can say is that if you imagine getting a young person by the scruff of the neck by the collar and the analogy is that with boys I always feel like you're having to do this boys want to do everything they think they can do everything all the time but with girls it's the opposite it's you're pushing them away you're like go out there go and be you go and be great go and achieve all of the things and uh, one of the biggest things that we use as a teaching point for our kids is such a simple thing but it's always the anchor that you can go back to and anyone who's you know read and and been a part of self-help you'll know about well-formed anchors and things that you can take someone back to, to to remind them of a specific event and so the left hand layup 
or the weekend layout because we've had some lefty players over the year is often something when you meet somebody within the first year or two of them playing they're always reluctant to try it because it's difficult and people want to lay the ball up a million and one times with a strong hand and we're very very um strict on you don't ever use the wrong hand on the wrong hand side uh you know and so if you're going to use your left hand, if you're going to be on the left-hand side, you're going to use your left hand. When they get older, we teach them about, you know, opposite hand finishing and stuff like that. But um, with the girls especially, once you teach them a left-hand layup, you've always got the anchor to take them back to if they ever tell you that they can't do something. Because you can say to them, "We back in the day you told me you couldn't do that, and you can. And it's something that now you do on instinct. I don't have to tell you to do it anymore. You just do it. And it's always about teaching. It's always about telling them that your can'ts are yours, that you own them, and nobody else believes them. You you tell yourself you can't do something, so you can't. But for me, coaching girls primarily um, is about life skills. It's about pushing them out there. It's about giving them the confidence. And it's difficult. Girls go through different changes to boys. You know, hormonally, you know, in adolescent years, they change so much. Um, and so it is, it's, it's about girls pushing them out there and boys sometimes reeling them back. All of our boys think they can play in the NBA, all of our girls, you know, you know, and that's not just the kids that we've got now. I think that that's, you know, a, a generational or a cultural thing is that you, you need to empower. And a big part of, I think, my coaching is, is about empowerment. When you look at the players that have come through your program or, um, you know, that you've coached over the years, mm -hmm. Is there any particular success stories that stick out in your mind? Maybe a non-obvious one, or, or ones there where you know maybe originally you just thought this kid has got no chance of ever being a basketball player, um, and prove you wrong, or or any other nice stories around around that. Um, everyone with me always goes back to Toyosi and Chandra because Toyosi was such a freakish athlete, and uh, and Chandra was you know a young player that that came along and. I thought that they were terrible when they first started. Like, they were really, really bad. I remember us having a conversation earlier on, and it, it, it was about, I've never seen two kids with the skill of being able to lay the ball up off a backboard and the ball bounce so hard off the backboard that it would bounce back past the free throw line. They, they were professional, those two at it. It was really bad. And I, I remember having a conversation maybe six weeks into them playing, like, are these kids ever going to figure this out? Because they're really bad. And then we took them to a game and they just, it clicked and they just got better. And Toyosi always had, she's going to hate me for saying, she always had a big problem with the backcourt rule. She says, stupid rule, why can't we just go in the backcourt? And I said, okay, it's a stupid rule, but it's there for a reason and, you know, you need to get used to it. And so they're, they're an interesting story because they were playing four and five years, um, respectively, Toyosi four years and Chandra five years and they ended up going off and getting scholarships. But... They were grinders. They would come to school at 6.45 in the morning and, and play for an hour before school. They would be in the gym at lunchtime. They would be in there after school. And I don't think they ever really knew what they were doing. And they never, if you ask them now, they would never say, yeah, we were doing this from a young age for scholarships. They just both ended up in the States on scholarships. But, I mean, there's loads of stories. I've been around so many young people over the years that, you know, I've had kids that play for me that... Uh, there was a kid that, that played for Peck and Pride and he came up to Westminster Warriors and left and wrote me a letter, Samson Ayidiran. Um And Samson wrote me a letter and goes, look, I'm just not ready to be here. And then came back a year later, played for us. 
Uh, I never thought Samson would get a scholarship to go to the States and he ended up, you know, he went up to Preston with Malcolm League for a while and ended up at Tennessee State and he's graduated now. And I, I didn't necessarily think he would ever make it to that level, but he did. And uh, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of kids and I, I think it's about harnessing, and I'm no expert, I don't want to sit here and act like I'm the, the, the scholarship guru for sending kids to the States because I'm not. There's, and there's loads of really good people out there doing it, but they're there does come a time where a kid either has that moment where it clicks and you're like, they are going to be good enough or maybe they have the dip and you're like, oh, I don't know how much they want it and if they're willing to, to push through. But too many stories, like literally there's too many in terms of kids that, you know, they grind. I, I would say the one common theme with 90% of the kids that, that get those opportunities is they sacrifice. They put in the time and they sacrifice and, and, you know, with hard work, it gets them to where they need to be. You mentioned there about not being a, a guru about uh, getting scholarships to the States, but mm -hmm. obviously you have sent a fair few, mm -hmm. fair few to the States. And um, I would say you're definitely I, up. I haven't. I always say to all of the kids, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I haven't. A kid gets themselves a scholarship. A coach can never get it for them because if you're not good enough, no one's going to give it to you anyway. So I've supported. Fair <laughs> enough. Okay, you've supported. Um, and on that note, like mm. I would definitely say you're up there uh, in the UK. It's one of the most connected uh, with, uh, you know, American college coaches. Mm -hmm. um, how has that happened? How has that come about? How have you cultivated those relationships and how have you, how have you made them in the first place? Obviously, you know, it's tough being from England. There's a mm. perception of, oh, you know, not good at basketball and this and that. Yeah. Um, how has it all come about? Uh, I have a real, really dear friend that I met at Midnight Madness in 2005 who you've met, who, uh, his name's Pat Connolly. Um, he's been in and around the NBA. When he first came to us, he was a grad assistant at Baylor. And we developed a friendship. He's from Baltimore. I'm a huge Baltimore Ravens fan. I have to plug my team. And uh, <laughs> he, um, he just connected me with some people in 2006 and 2007 and the tree's grown. And... I always say to people, Pat kind of started my my US network. Um, and I've met people individually from there and stuff like that, you know, separately from from that tree. But my, I would say that the tree started with him and kind of built. And it's weird. The first person was, uh, he ever introduced me to was a guy called Mark Moorfield who used to work at Baylor. He was the associate head coach at Baylor. And we spoke, and now he works in girls basketball, was a division three coach in Texas, and we spoke yesterday. And so it kind of goes around full circle. Um, and then we've done AAU trips and, and we've taken the kids over. And I think that AAU is so important and vital for US coaches, because not many of them come over here. So it's vital that they see the kids in the flesh. If they can see a kid in the flesh, they make up their mind really, really quickly. But tape can, you know, they do it when they're sending the Americans over here to the BBL. You know, you've got a six foot nine power forward that gets off a plane and they're six foot five, six foot six. And, and likewise, it goes in the same, in the other direction. We never do it. I always try and be as transparent as possible. But, you know, they don't know if the kid that looks great on a tape over here is gonna be what they hope they be over there and so it's always about getting them to see the the players in the flesh so we invite as many people as we can and take the kids over as often as we can except the trips are really expensive so it makes it difficult but yeah it's it the network just keeps going i'm happy to help people i try not to advise on other people's players because i don't know the kid and so some people do do that but i'm not really i might say contact somebody else like if 
Myersco have got a player, I might say Cornell. If Lloyd have got a player, I say, I don't give appraisals on other people's players. I don't start talking up because I don't know the kid. The kid could not be built for that type of environment, for that type of situation. And so, uh, yeah, it's just, I guess, trying to be a good person, trying to help out, trying to stay in contact with people. Some of the coaches in the States, I, I would consider friends, not all of them, but some of them are good friends. And I, I guess it all, you know, it started... 13, 12, 13 years ago with my friend Pat who who kind of opened up the connection and he put me in touch with 10 or 12 schools back then and I still talk to you know some of those people today. So. And so do you um, do you send like, you know, do you think, oh, it's been a couple of months since I've checked in with this coach. Mm. Do you sort of try and make a point of checking in with people regularly so that kind of you it remain on their radar or? It depends who it is. It depends the, the rapport we've got. Um, some coaches I just really like. I think they're good people. Some of them... You know, I don't know if I can mention it on the podcast, who is who and stuff like that, but some people will send me coaching stuff and, and we'll talk about coaching things and stuff like that. And you just meet some really good people. And, and on the opposite side of it in US basketball, you've got some real car salesmen who I don't choose to, to speak to very often. And I'll, I'll be very candid. I'll never not tell one of our kids if someone shows interest, but I'll give my opinion on it. I don't think that that's the school for you. I don't think that, that person is necessarily someone I want to send you to. Um, but I'll reach out to, just depending on who it is, not everybody. Um, I have a, a WhatsApp group or, or broadcast list on my phone. So if one of our kids has a highlight tape, I'll broadcast out the highlight tape and say, you know, yeah. 2019 kid, 3.4 GPA, SAT score of such and such. And sometimes that's a little bit easier in this day and age with technology than sending an email and doing, you know, I try not to cold call and message people just out of the blue. Hi, coach. I'm Coach Jackson from England, and because they get 150, 200 emails like that every day, and sometimes our kids will come running up to me in school, like coach and a coach reply, and I say yeah, they have to reply and they have to do their due diligence. But I always say to our kids, you're not really being recruited until you get an offer from an assistant or you're on the phone to the head coach. That's when that's when a situation with a school becomes real and. Uh, I'm always willing to support our kids. Some want to go and I don't necessarily think it's the right situation for them, but who am I to tell you that your dream is not, you know, is not something that uh, you should pursue. If my opinion is only my opinion. I'm not right all of the time. Quite often I'm wrong, so. I was gonna say, how, how important do you think it is mm. for kids to get a school that's the right fit for them? You know, we see a lot of, I mean, I think so many kids here, uh, um, obviously, just so hell bent on getting to the states. Mm. They'll take whatever's going and not really think about uh, who's playing ahead of them. You know what the location of the school is, yeah. um, what the ethos of the school is, and as, I think as a result of that, we do see a you know ridiculous number of kids transferring and changing schools and stuff. Mm. Um, I remember your DNP list from a few years ago, article of, which was needed. You should actually put it out there on a yearly basis so that the yeah. kids can see it because it is, it is something that a lot of people don't see on this side and a lot of young people, it's like so few UK kids really understand their dream. And uh, I think Steve has got his new, you know, recruiting service, which I think is good. And I think there's a couple of coaches that, that do the due diligence to be able to help people, uh, you know, to be able to help the kids make informed decisions. But you don't know these people and you need to do your investigations and find out how long's the head coach been there? How long does the head coach intend to be there? Is the head coach going to get fired, or could they get offered another job? You know, after you being there for a year, um, what's the state of play with the assistant that's recruiting you? 
um, is the team going to move conference in the next three years, which could impact you? Because if they move to a bigger conference, all of a sudden they can recruit a different quality of player. How assured are you of being there for those four years and, and enjoying your time? And then, you know, geographically, is it a fit for you? Are you in a good place where, you know, some some kids go to anywhere and, you know, not to, to pour scorn on, on a particular area in America. I don't want to say anything negative, but there are some states in America that are not designed for UK kids to go over there and live a happy, successful life, especially kids in London. Such a cultural change, but they'll be like, but it's the States. And I'm like, it is the States, but it's not what you dream the States to be. You're not, you know, you're not in New York State. You're not in Florida. You're not in California. You're not in Illinois. You know, it's not what you, you've you dreamt of, but you, you want to be able to tell people I'm in, you know, I'm in the States. And that's, uh, I think that there's been a lot of kids that have made those mistakes, especially going to junior colleges and division three schools or NAI schools that they know nothing about. Um, because I always think that the dream for UK kids is that they think that they're going to be in the ACC because that's what we see. I mean, when I, especially when I was a kid in the day of Pontel videotapes and, uh, and cassette, literally, um, you know, you thought that all of US basketball was like that and uh, it's not. It's And, you know, you can't trust everybody that's over there and I don't mean to say that in a negative way, but you're dealing with human beings and sometimes, you know, when you're dealing with human beings, it is... You know, you're going to run up on on a not so great person, and some people don't. Everyone thinks, "Oh, I'm going to go to the states and I'm going to get a, a father figure or a mother figure," and they're going to. It's just not always like that, and so you've got to be careful and do your due diligence and try and understand. And I spend time with our kids that go, looking into those things and talking about it. And one of the biggest things that people make a mistake is style of play. You have to watch the team play before you decide to go to that school? Do you fit their structure? Do you fit what they do? Does the university have the course that, that you want to study or are you going to make an exception? And so I say to all of our kids, I need you to make a life decision, not a basketball decision. If you're making a basketball decision right now, it's the wrong decision. You need to make the decision that's best for your life. And ultimately, it's about to come away from the situation with a degree, with a blank canvas at 22, 23 years old for the rest of your life. And all of the sacrifice that people who get scholarships make, it takes, you know, a hell of a lot of effort to, to get that far. Make the sacrifice now, get your education for free. Don't have the student loan that, you know, so many people have to pay back. And then if at 22, 23 years old, you want to go and travel the world or, you know, do something or party, you know, like a rock star for, you know, three or four years and then by the time you get to 26 27 get into the workforce and get a career then you can do that without this huge debt and you'll have had the great life experience of playing in the states and that that's my vision for so many of our kids that's why i want to be able to support them on that journey in terms of roots um for players mm -hmm. from the uk to become professional basketball players mm. the, the few that do uh do you think we're close to being in a position where um, there are options in the UK that are better than what they could get in the States to help them achieve the goal of becoming a professional basketball player? Depending on where you're picking and what the opportunity is in the States, yes. Like, I think that there's some really good setups here. Like I said, Denzel's over in, over in Plymouth. Uh, you know, Leicester Riders have got the connection with Loughborough. Um, can't think of any of the other ones now. Bristol, obviously connected with Bristol University, I think. And so you can get a great Russell Group level education here, or you can go to an NAIA school in Iowa and 
get a degree that's not really worth the paper that it's written on over here. And I say Iowa, we've got a kid over there, you might have to edit that. <laughs> but anyway, um, you, you know, you can get a, a degree from somewhere in the States that it's not worth the paper that it's written on. And you can say you played basketball in the States. Or you can go to Bristol University and play for Andreas and get a degree at Bristol. And, you know, that is going to impact your life far more because such a you know a reputable university and so i do say to our kids don't settle for anything when you go over there because it, just because it's got basketball doesn't mean it's the right situation for you but thankfully the majority of our kids are in very good situations that they enjoy we've had one or two kids transfer as every program will have like anyone who looks from the outside says oh you know the kids transfer it we've all got one or two kids that have gone to somewhere in the states and it hasn't panned out um and you're never going to know if you like something until you go and live it. And that's the harsh reality of it all is that they have to go and experience it before they know. So, One of the most common questions uh, that I get you know, via Instagram DM or mm. uh, in my email inbox every now and again will be mm. a kid in the middle of nowhere, not really involved uh, in basketball mm. on, a national, on a national level or any mm. type of way, but wants to achieve that dream. Yeah. Um, in fact, that was probably me when I was you know, 16, 17 years old. Yeah. Uh, what advice would you give to them? You know, if they're asking me, you know, how can I how can I get a scholarship to the states? Um, what would you say? Uh, I don't want to come across as an expert. I don't know, but my mind my mind would tell me in that situation with a young person, they're not connected to national league. Yeah, let's let's just let's. Well, they they might be involved with national league, but mm. not in any type of academy program. They're just kind of like just not really not involved in any type of national team program just mm. kind of in, you know just a bit sort of on the outskirts of sort of national level basketball you know I, I would say not to force them towards an academy I would say try and associate yourself with a club that's got experience of those things because there are some clubs that are phenomenal that, that aren't, don't have academies at the moment I'm not going to tell you that every academy is the only place and I know you know in the future it will probably go in the direction that most clubs will be connected to some kind of institution but there are some really good clubs uh, that have sent people on to places in the state to try and associate yourself with one of those places that has experience of doing it before or stay where you are work as hard as you can grind get the best grades you can and become a trailblazer in that program and uh, we had to have the first player that went from our program and there's always going to be a first. So, you know, just it, it it's all relative to the person. I would never say that there's there's an, an absolute blueprint for doing it. Um, it just depends. Because if you just said to the kids that started at Cola, you know, what you, you know, how are you going to end up getting to the States? What's the, the, the route? I don't know, uh, you know, but they found their way and they and they made progress. And I think that any kid can do it from any situation. It's just about the hard work and the sacrifice. I think. Do you think there needs to be um, more centralised input uh, from a federation level uh, to advise kids and give kids guidance on, um, you know, making the jump to the states or heading to Europe and stuff? I think yes to a degree but I think everybody that there's bigger fish to fry at the moment and I think that each individual institution or club kind of deals with those things I think there should be a written document um to support with the do's and don'ts and some scouting services provide those things and they provide support with those things but maybe something to just provide a to just give a little bit more insight. Sometimes I do speak to to young people and their parents and they're like, we've got no clue how it works. And I look at the kid and I'm like, you could absolutely get a scholarship if, you know, 
you attack it and you approach it in the right way, but they don't they don't know how the process works. And so so yeah, it it would be good if there was something in place for that by the federation, whether it be GB basketball or basketball England or whatever. Um, but I'm sure that's something that's in the in in the kind of the pipeline and and will be coming soon. You said there's bigger fish to fry. Mm. Uh, what are the bigger fish to fry when we talk about basketball on a, on a bigger scale across the UK? Um, the issues that maybe it has and the, mm. the things that, where it's, where's it improving or where it's not improving? You know, if you're in charge, what are the things that you'd like to see to help um, improve and push the game forward? Um, I, I would like to see more support at the lower levels. Like, I think that, and I, I'm sure they're doing it. I don't want to say, you know, that they're not doing it or whatever. But, you know, w we should start basketball at a younger age. There should be more local opportunities for kids to then go up and play, you know, at the national level later on. Um, one of uh, the other coaches at the club showed me his nephew playing football, um, two-on-two -two football in Belgium. He's like three and a half, four years old. There was no goalkeeper. It's two against two. And all they're doing is figuring out how to beat one player, beat one player and kick the ball in the goal because that ultimately, you know, later on down the line is what you really need to do. We don't really have basketball at that level over here and it's difficult, but I think that, you know, we get caught up so top heavy focusing on the top end that if we start grassroots, build from there, I don't want to get into the Olympic legacy because I'm not educated enough to speak on it, but... I found what we did from an Olympic standpoint quite disappointing, um, even from team selection, if I'm honest. I think that there were some young English guys that could have got the nation behind them, and we didn't really go that route. And I, I won't go too much more into it because I'm not, I'm not the type of person to be that involved in it, but I felt dispirited knowing that we, you know, we had some young English guys that could have played and we went, you know, the naturalized route and stuff like that. I really do think that those guys should have played. So, um, yeah, building from younger, forcing, th this is one of the things I would say is that if you're an academy, and I know most academies are doing it now, there's a lot that have, have set up their own thing. If you're an academy and you're recruiting externally, you should be putting back into the pot as well in terms of providing players or, you know, uh, Developing, younger, developing players. younger players, exactly, because you can't take all the time and then those clubs are going to get dispirited. They're not going to want to, you know, continue to do it unless they're happy to send kids off at 16, 17. But if you've got your own pool of players, one, you know, however many it is every year, four or five, and then you recruit on top of that, then we're kind of not bleeding the other situations dry. You're, you're adding and you're developing your own players to be able to, to add support. More players playing, the better the standard will be, the higher it will be. And uh, I've got theories on, on different things. I've got theories on, you know, what I think about national team and, and what I think about all of those things. And my focus with a lot of those things, you know, I've spoken to people about doing the national team stuff uh, before. If I do that, it takes away from my focus for what's really important to me and what's really important to me are the kids that I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And if I can focus on them and get them to where they need to be, then you know that will always be my priority instead of spreading myself too thin. Um, and I don't, I definitely don't coach for my own personal development. It, coaching for me is far more about mentoring than it is about me proving that I'm smarter than the other guy on the sideline because I had a better 
you know, ATO out of a timeout and it was like, ah, I got him. Like, I really don't care yeah. about all of that stuff. Um, I'm aware of time here, but it, mm -hmm. the one thing I, I did want to touch upon, mm -hmm. uh, I think it was 2017, your sort of historic season with the, with the girls. Yeah. Um, so th that year, correct me if I'm wrong, mm. team was all under 19. Yeah. Uh, so you won Division One Women's yeah. Playoff and Cup. Did you win the league as well? And league? We didn't win the didn't league. Didn't win the league. The only thing we, and we haven't won the league. We've run, come runner-up two years in a row. We didn't ever win the league. Okay. The you won the WABL, WABL title that year as well. Yeah. And you won the under-18 national title. Yeah. And cup title. Yeah. So it was a big year. Five, yeah. How do you reflect on, on that season and that group of girls? There was a lot of players that have obviously gone on to the States now and are doing great things. Um... I think as a coach, I was just very blessed to have a group buying similar to the boys in 2010, but I was with those girls for, for four years and um, we had so many mantras and hashtags. It was so cliche, it's unbelievable, but they just, they just, they put down personal agendas and they were very talented. Like you, we could never say that they're not extremely talented, but they put down their personal agendas and, and we called that year the last ride. And Steve Veer was with me for the first three months of it. And we'd won under 18s uh, the year before in Division Two women. And uh, we I used to talk about daring to dream and stuff like that. And we've got next play mentality. You know, something doesn't go our way, we move on. It's just loads of cliche stuff. Like very seldom are these things, things that I create. But I think one of the things that I created that was so special in in that team uh it started the year before but it kind of led on to that was uh we used to have a mantra about being queen amongst queens and it's weird because i'm almost a middle-aged man or i guess i am a middle-aged man but i gave them a talk um about you know i won't go into the whole story but i gave them a talk about just how you view yourself and are you a regular person are you a queen or are you would you that challenge yourself to dare to be a queen amongst queen. The delivery was at the end of a practice. It was at the end of a pretty poor practice that, you know, I felt like they needed something. It was a 20 minute talk. It was quite powerful. I think if you ask any of the people that coach for me, they always tell me, oh, it's the delivery, it's the delivery. Sometimes we, you know, we finish, we finish practice and you give a talk and some of the kids roll their eyes. I, I'm under no illusions like, oh, he's gonna talk again. but sometimes you can just give them that thing and the, and the queen amongst queens talk i think really changed how they viewed themselves and they really like we would walk into gyms like it was only last year it feels like a, an eternity ago but we would walk into gyms and whether it was steve Veer that was with me or marvin addy or, or coach quarter i have to shout out coach quarter because we're here talking about culture and we're talking about all of these things and there is no Coach Jackson without Coach Corte. He's an absolutely phenomenal human being, one of the best people I've ever met. And he maybe doesn't get the same recognition, but if you ask all of the kids who's their favorite basketball coach is, they'll be like, it's Coach Corte, hands down. I'm like, hey, 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 I took you guys somewhere. I did all this. <laughs> but it is, they'll say it's Coach Corte. They love the guy to pieces, and so do I. I think he's an incredible human being. But if you, if you ask, you know, them, um, you know, those three guys about, what would happen, they would say, it only really takes two minutes of a game for those girls to finish the game. They just turn the screw, they decide we could struggle for 38 minutes and they'll just decide to switch on and go and play. And they were so close, it was hard to, they would squabble and they would bicker, but we would always have 
the mantra of you don't have to be best friends with your sisters um and they would really really carry that it would be so important for them along the journey for them to kind of realize i don't have to be best friends with this girl but what i i do have to do is respect her she's my sister in basketball and so they you know that experience for me is life-changing i'll always look back on that um i love our kids our current kids in exactly the same way but that one experience was much like the boys in 2010 was a time where we got it so right and they they really really bought in um and they were incredibly talented like i think they made me look better as a coach than i really was because they just did all the right things and so you know it helped me and so i I won a coach of the year at Basketball England and we all went up. Not to, I, It wasn't my award, it was their award. They got it, we all went up, we all celebrated together. And I think that's one of the Southwark Pride stroke cola things that I think, you know, embody what we do is that it's a collective, it's a team before anything else. Final question, mm. the future. Um, you know, looking ahead sort of, I guess, longer term, mm. uh, you know, where do you see yourself? Where do you see Cola? Mm. Um, you know, do you have BBL, WBBL aspirations? Um, kind of, yeah. Where do you Where do you want the club to go to? Uh, I don't know, to be honest. I don't know how long I'll do it. I don't know how much longer I'll be in this situation. I'm getting older. Uh, I'm not old, but I'm getting older. Um, my life priorities might change. Um, and so it's a year to year thing for me and a year to year thing based on when the kids come in, I'm not going to recruit a kid to a school and not intend to be there until they finish. But could I tell you that I'll still be doing it in five years? I don't know. I think I'll always come back to, to coaching. I think I'll always come back to mentoring in some way. But if I was to tell you, you know, I know absolutely I've, in an ideal world, I would like it to be uh, an institute of sport with, you know, 10 coaches and four courts and, you know, the dream, the, the type of stuff that they have in, in other European countries. Um, and if we could get there, that would be my dream come true. It'd be absolutely phenomenal. But for right now, it, it's year on year. It's just taking every day as it comes and focusing on the kids at hand, not getting too far ahead of ourselves and wanting to recruit every good kid that's out there, focusing on, on developing the ones that are with us, fighting the everyday battles with those kids to to get them to, you know, achieve the goals that they say they want to achieve. Um, and yeah, essentially, uh, I, I have a saying um, that I use with my friends, very corny, but I have it and I, I've had it for years. I heard it on a, I don't even know what it where I heard it many, many years ago, but it's, uh, I think if one thing that would encompass our situation and where I want Coda to be, it would be for our kids to say, for me to say to our kids, don't walk in front of me because I may not choose to follow and don't walk behind me because I may not choose to lead. Instead, walk beside me and be my friend. And I think that that's important. And I'm not, when I say friend with the kids, it's not like that, but in terms of let's just go on a journey, let's just experience it. There doesn't have to be a set model for how it works. And if uh, if they all take on that mantra and they kind of work that way, I think in, co in five years time, Coda could be a phenomenal thing, but with the dynamics of school you never know what's going to happen so yeah we'll see it's a perfect place to leave it uh, Jackson thank you so much for coming here and joining us I appreciate it thank you I feel honoured to be here so thank you so much you are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website
Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.